come to your word. God, help us value the gospel more than our traditions. God, may we worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us see that we, we aren't good enough to be qualified in your, in your sight except for grace. And grace means that we don't deserve it. And so open eyes this morning. God, help us see our need of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 will be in verses 14 through 17 this morning. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. And we'll see this central idea that religion by tradition wrecks the gospel and grace alone brings true salvation. Religion by tradition wrecks the gospel. Grace alone brings true salvation. So I'll read these verses for us this morning. Uh, Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins are burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Well, if you hopped on your phone or computer this morning and you Googled worship wars, you'd get almost 48 million results. That's because worship wars really have been with the church since the church began. In the 1500s, it was a Roman Catholic monk, Martin Luther, uh, deciding that it was okay, not just for the clergy, for the, the preachers and uh, missionaries to sing, but for the congregation to sing. We have a couple hundred years after that, and there was an English Baptist pastor by the name of Benjamin Keach, and he kind of went a step further. So Martin Luther said, everyone can sing. Well, then uh, Benjamin Keach said, it's okay to sing songs that aren't exactly the, the Bible, that aren't just singing the words of Scripture. And so it's, honestly, it's most of what we have done uh, in our church this morning and most of what churches do around the world today. We call it congregational singing or singing songs or hymns. What well, was Benjamin Keach that did that? And that was a very controversial uh, decision when, when he began that. Or you go just a uh, hundred years ago or so, and at the beginning of the 20th century, they brought a radical new instrument into the church, the piano. Now, the piano was controversial because it was known for its use in, a, in kind of a new style of music known as jazz. And so piano itself was uh, controversial in that day. Well, in the first century, it, it was its own battle, and this battle is a battle over worship, and it's a battle over tradition. In this, in this case, it has to do with fasting. So Jesus uses an image of a wedding party to make a memorable point, that religion as tradition alone and true faith in Jesus really can't be blended together. One kind of sets the other. They're, they go together like oil and water. They just don't mix. And so the basic flow of what we're going to look here this morning is pretty simple. There's a question that people have, and then there's the answer, and the answer is in the form of a parable that Jesus tells. At the end of this, we're going to draw some lessons for our life today. So the question that these men bring to Jesus is this. It's pretty simple. Why don't you fast? Well, these disciples are their followers of John the Baptist. Matthew 4 tells us that John the Baptist has already been put in prison and in the book of Acts, we see that he still has a group of disciples, so they're people who are very loyal to John the Baptist. They apparently keep meeting in a committed group. 
It's likely, because we see the Pharisees hanging around here, that they're agitating the situation, kind of pointing out the differences in Jesus' disciples and John's disciples. Well, this is a day when true followers of Judaism fast. Well, they look around, and Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. So they come to Jesus with what seems to be a legitimate question in verse 14. Why don't your disciples fast? So in this day, the lives of devoted Jews are marked by three primary activities. A certain set of prayers that they would pray, almsgiving, uh, giving money to the poor, and the third is fasting. So any devout Jew, any sincere Jew, would be expected to give evidence of his sincerity by participating in these three things, prayer, giving alms, and fasting. So they come with this question, why are Jesus' disciples not acting like true worshipers? Why are they not acting like good worshipers like, like other Jews? Well, if you look through the Old Testament, there's really only one fast required by law, and that's on Yom Kippur, which is also known as the Day of Atonement. There's a 24-hour fast required by Jewish law. But that being said, it's common and expected in the first century for Jews to participate in other fasts as well. Pharisees in particular demonstrate uh, their commitment to the law and to the traditions of Judaism by fasting every Monday and Thursday. Uh, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, maybe this is like the first century keto diet. You know, it's like the, uh, the first century weight loss program. The Pharisees fast twice a week. So among them, fasting is seen as a sign of sincerity, a sign of commitment, a sign of humility. Well, if you don't fast, that's arrogant. and It's also seen as secular someone who doesn't follow God. So John's disciples who have been brought up in this mindset are curious. They know how religious people act, and Jesus' disciples aren't acting like that. Jesus doesn't have any issues with fasting because we know already in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you fast, fast like this. So he's not saying not to fast. He, he is a good Jew who would keep the law and certainly fast on the Day of Atonement. So then what's, what's the problem here? The problem is fasting ain't appropriate at a party. And that's what Jesus says. These people don't recognize Jesus for who he is. When you go to the birthday party, you eat the birthday cake. When you're at the wedding party, you participate in the wedding feast, the wedding reception. Jesus is the bridegroom, and that's where he goes next. He answers with a parable. Verse 15, Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Well, clearly the answer is what? No. Well, in our culture today, weddings are moments of celebration. You could call them parties. You, you celebrate a union of one man, one woman coming together. Well, this is true, even truer, in Jesus' day. In fact, if you were a widow who had lost her husband and you were getting remarried, you got a three-day feast in your honor for your second marriage. And if you were a first-time bride, bridegroom, you got a week-long feast so, I mean, these Jews did it right. A week-long party with food, dancing, fun in the house, in the streets. And, and, and weddings were seen as such big celebrations that even the most respected rabbis could kind of set aside their, you know, solemn robes and their, and their commitment for a few days, leave their Torah lessons for a wedding for a week and party. Well, the problem here is not the fasting because there are times for fasting. The problem is, it's not appropriate to fast at a party. It's not appropriate to fast at a wedding. Fasting there, if you refuse to eat and drink, all right, imagine, 
You go to this wedding to honor this bride and this groom. They're, 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 uh, their families are together. There are people dancing and celebrating. And you stand to the side with your arms crossed and kind of refusing to participate. Is this seen as a sign of honor and respect? Or is this seen as a sign of disrespect? Clearly, it's a sign of disrespect because it's not appropriate to kind of hold back in that way. This family has celebrated so extravagantly and you're going to say, nah, that's not for me. Well, you don't want to insult the host, so you're going to jump right in. Well, Jesus uses an illustration that they're well familiar with, Jewish weddings. But in doing so, he also makes a pretty audacious claim. Because we have throughout the Old Testament this wedding imagery used. You have a bride and a bridegroom. The bride is Israel, and the bridegroom is Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant Lord of Israel himself. There are several references to this. I'll just note a couple here. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord speaks, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. He's talking about a wedding ceremony. Isaiah 62, 5 uses the exact language. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So these people come and they think they're catching Jesus. And then Jesus takes their curiosity and sort of raises them one. He goes all in. He says, you're asking why we're not fasting? We're not fasting because I am Yahweh. I am the bridegroom. I am the covenant God of Israel in the flesh. Well, then the story gets a little bit strange in verse 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. This language to be taken away is, is, is violent language, is to be ripped away violently. It's like imagining you're at this week-long feast of, of, of Jewish celebration, celebrating this wedding, and suddenly in come, comes a Roman legion, men on their horses, and, and they tear the bridegroom away from the bride at this party. And that's, that's the image that Jesus uses here. It's violent, it's unexpected. It's not something you want to think about when you're at a wedding, this kind of invasion, this kind of violence. What's Jesus doing? He's foreshadowing something coming, that there is a day when this bridegroom will be ripped away like this. He's picturing the most violent event in the history of the world, the crucifixion. Well, then Jesus jumps quickly to two more pictures to make his point in verses 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unstrung cloth in an old garment where the patch tears away and a worse tear is made, then he does the same with the wine and the wineskins. Well, this word old means a worn out. So this garment is old, worn out kind of cloth. Well, the two most common materials to make cloth out of in the first century would be linen and wool. Now, both of those materials shrink when they get wet and then they, then they dry. In fact, you know if you have a wool sweater, you don't throw it in the what? in the dryer because it will shrink. You'll put it out and it'll fit your kids, not fit you, right? So you don't throw that uh, sweater in the dryer. And maybe you've even had this question, why don't sheep shrink in the rain? <laughs> How is it that wool and us shrinks, but you know, sheep you know, don't get away with this? Well, sheep are naturally covered in lanolin, which is kind of a, a grease or oil-like material that makes their wool while it's on them water repellent, so they don't shrink. Well, if you place a, a patch of very strong material on this cloth and, and you attach it to this worn-out, frayed wool, when it gets wet and the patch shrinks, what happens? It tears away from, from the old cloth. It pulls back. And the second picture is a little bit similar. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. 
We get a little picture here of first century life. They don't have glass blowers and they don't have factories, so they put their wine in, in leather animal skins, not in wine bottles. So what they do is they, they remove the skin from the animal, carefully uh, tan the leather with the fur side out, and then clean the inside, and they would make it soft and flexible, and, then, and they would um, use it for storing liquid in or other things, but in this case, wine. The tanning makes it usable. It also uh, makes sure that you don't get this taste of the animal into, uh, into the wine itself. Well, they'd sew it up, and they'd leave one end open as kind of a stopper. So you'd have these, these animal skins, and they would hold the wine. Well, if you ever watch uh, the World Series, Super Bowl, some kind of championship, uh, afterward, if they show footage of what's going on in the locker room after the game, what's going there? Champagne, right? It's blowing up everywhere. And if you pop the top off the champagne, it, it, it blows like this. Well, champagne, they add some sugar to to make that happen even more. But this naturally happens when wine ferments. You've got glucose changing into carbon dioxide and ethanol. And when it does this, it expands. And so if you have a, a very kind of stiff, brittle uh, object that it's being stored in, it will naturally burst that. But if the, the wineskin is new and flexible, it will naturally expand with it. Well, as animals, animal skins age, they get dried out and, and stiff. Well, if you put your new wine that is still not fully fermented in this kind of wineskin, what happens? You lose your wine because the, the, the skin itself breaks. So what's the point that Jesus is making here? There's an absolute line drawn between the religious experience of Jews up to this point and everything moving forward. In other words, he's saying, you have traditions. They're stiff, they're rigid. Into these traditions, you're trying to drop me, and that doesn't work. If you drop grace into tradition, grace will break, burst the traditions. What he's saying is what you're seeing unfold before your eyes is a paradigm shift far greater than what you're expecting. It's going to destroy your expectations. Just like trying to mix an old tattered cloth with a new cloth, just like trying to put new unfermented wine into an old wineskin, Jesus cannot be mixed with existing religion. You can't take your expectations and add Jesus to that. You can't take your commitments, your traditions, and simply add Jesus to that. Jesus completely takes the old, and he sets it aside. In this case, it's traditional, traditional Judaism. With all of its trappings, it is utterly going to be blown to bits by Jesus' message. Jesus is bringing in a new day, a new message, and his story highlights the difference that his coming makes. So what he's saying is, if you're kind of an interested bystander, you're a committed religious person, what he's saying is, you can't merely add me, the parts about me that you like, to your existing life. You can't fit me into an existing paradigm. Jesus radically takes over and creates a whole new world. Now, Jesus isn't setting aside the Old Testament and saying it doesn't matter. He's specifically addressing their human traditions that they've added to Scripture. And we see in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus fulfills the law. So he's committed to Scripture, but he takes man-made traditions and he bursts them. He sets them aside. He tears them away like cloth from a garment. These are not a requirement for a relationship with God. Well, to zoom back just a little bit, what has Jesus just said in verse 13? We looked at it last week. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the Pharisees, they come, Jesus, why don't you fast? I mean, they still don't get it. 
They're hung up on points of tradition. They're hung up on points of interpretation, on points of application. And Jesus is here to say, you're so worried about your traditions, your application of the law, that you have missed the entire point of the law. You see, the moral law shows us the moral will of God, and Galatians 3 teaches us that it also serves as a schoolmaster. It's a school teacher, and what does it teach us? It teaches us, it shows us that we need Jesus. We need something greater. It points us to our need of Christ. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart. And you try to live life, and you're like, I can't do that. I can't love God that way. My affections always feel split. I'm always second-guessing. I'm always drawn to other things. Who hasn't failed to do this? Honor your father and your mother. All right, kids. Ever been a moment when you're like, Mom and Dad, that ain't cool. Mom and Dad, no thanks. Mom and Dad, I know better. Mom and Dad, I'm not listening. I mean, from our very, I mean, by the time you're 18 months, two years old, you're breaking the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. Now, I know y'all don't struggle with this, but there have been people in the history of the world who struggle with this, wishing they had things they didn't have, wishing they had more money than they have, thinking someone else got a better life. I mean, there's a reason that in our culture, celebrity is a thing. Fame is a thing. It's, there's a reason that we elevate these things. It's because culturally we struggle with this commandment. You shall not covet. You see, what the law does, it's a teacher. It teaches us that we cannot be truly good. We can try to be good, but we cannot be truly good. The Pharisees are failing to keep the moral law of God. Love God with your whole heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yet they're failing yet they're judging Jesus and his disciples for failing to keep their traditions. God said, here's my expectation. And they're coming along and they're saying, Jesus, why aren't you keeping our expectations? And Jesus is saying, you know, you're you're pointing the finger at me. you got four fingers pointing back at yourself. Jesus inserts himself to this conversation. So up to this point, God's people have had the expectation that keeping the law is what makes them right with God or what makes them righteous innocent in God's eyes. And to a point, they're correct. But as Martin Luther discovered in the 1500s, you can't ultimately do it. So there's this righteousness that God requires. God has this standard. It's not our standard, it's God's standard. And the point of the law is to show us we cannot meet this standard. It's what we fall short of the glory, short of the expectations of God. And so what happens is God's standard is here. We must meet this righteous standard. And so into this gap between our ability and God's expectations, who bridges that distance? That's Jesus. And so what Martin Luther discovered is that this expectation is absolute. God requires perfect righteousness. And there's only one person who can meet this, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus steps into this gap. He keeps the law and expectations of God perfectly so that we are justified. We are made righteous through faith in Jesus. This faith comes to us through Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. He says, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that you cannot save yourself. But by trusting Jesus, God will see you as good as Jesus is. 
The gospel is the good news that though you cannot be truly good, there is none righteous, no, not one. If you trust Jesus, Jesus' goodness becomes yours. The gospel is the good news that we can never be truly worthy in ourselves, yet through Jesus we are more than worthy. So we have to, like these first century Jews, set aside ideas of our own goodness, set aside ideas of our own worthiness, and trust Jesus and Jesus alone to save us. If you're here this morning, depending in any way on your own goodness, would you trust Jesus and Jesus alone to save you? Well, what lessons can we draw from this parable? The first is that grace teaches us that we can't be truly good apart from Jesus. What Jesus is saying is you cannot stick grace onto the garment of works, onto the garment of ritual, tradition. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's God giving us things that are undeserved, unmerited. Grace, by definition, means that it's not something that we deserve. So if there's any thought in our minds that we're Christians because we're good Christian people, then we don't understand grace. It actually works the opposite. That kind of thinking is antithetical to the gospel. And it makes us believe that God owes us. As one pastor noted a while ago, the the thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Then Jesus comes in and he provides grace for our sin. Now, God created us all in his image, which means that in every human being created, there's a reflection of God's goodness. Yet since the fall, that goodness is broken. And God's requirement is unbroken, absolute, perfect goodness. Sin touches every part of us, so that's why Romans 3 tells us there is no one who does good, no, not one. It's not because you can't do any good thing. It's because you can't do the goodness that God requires. Secondly, religion is hypocritical if it's divorced from a heart that truly worships the Lord. I mean, Matthew keeps pounding this point over and over and over again, When we'll see it again. The Son of God is standing in front of them, speaking to them, but the Pharisees are worried. Jesus, why don't you keep our traditions? I mean, can you imagine? You're talking to God, and you're saying, God, why don't, why don't you keep up with our expectations? This is a relatively minor worship war about relatively minor traditions. But the question can still apply today, can't it? Do we get engaged in worship wars over relatively minor traditions? I'm not talking about a worship style or a music style. I'm talking about a culture, a way that we say that we're Christian merely because there's a culture that feels Christian. Or do we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? Perhaps you can remember the moment you were saved. Perhaps you can't. Well, either way... Our relationship with Jesus is built on repentance and faith in Jesus alone. And then that relationship flows into a life of worship. But doing Christian things doesn't make us Christian any more than Pharisees keeping their traditions, their knowledge of the Bible, makes them true followers of Jesus. God looks at our heart. What we saw last week, he desires mercy more than sacrifice. The heart of our worship of God is people who are humbled by grace, sincerely worshiping God. Thirdly, traditions should be handled wisely in light of who Jesus is. Well, the main point of this passage is that Jesus takes the Jewish traditions and demonstrates they can't fit with his message of grace. Well, every culture tends to establish its own traditions, doesn't. 
And what happens is there's this, there's this flow to culture. We have kind of a way we do things, a set of preferences, a way we like to do things, and we settle into a rhythm of doing those things that way, and they kind of dig a, a groove, a pattern into our lives that become our way of life. And as they become our way of life, they become a tradition. Well, are traditions bad? No. You might be thinking I'm saying they're bad. I'm not saying they're bad. I mean, for instance, uh, one, it's, I guess it's a tradition, it's a part of the rhythm of our family life, is, is once a week we do what we call a family date. Now, there might be other times we do things, but there's a time where we're going to say, okay, we're going to take time as a family, we're going to go do something together. It might be go to a park, it might be go grab something to eat, it might be run and grab a coffee together, we're going to do something, and that, that's a part of our family rhythm. In fact, if it doesn't happen, there's like, what's going on, Dad? Like, this is our expectation. You know, Dad, I'm two, but I got this tradition. You know, like, can we keep up with the traditions here, the tradition of the elders? And so, it's not bad. Well, is fasting bad? No, fasting's not bad. Could it be good to fast twice a week? Yeah, that, that, could, be, that could be a good thing. But what happens here? That what happens is that the tradition becomes equated with a relationship with God. You see, Jesus isn't, he's, he's not confronting the idea that tradition is bad ever. He's saying that when you equate tradition, keeping tradition with a relationship with me, that's bad. It doesn't matter if you're 8, 18, or 80. You got your traditions. Every generation has its expectations. Well, I'm not surprising anyone by saying this can be particularly a challenge when we are locked into a way of doing things for a long time. And so this is something that confronts us all. Now, I don't, I don't know where it is. I know that one day I'm going to sit down with my kids, and they're going to say, Dad, that is so old school. And I'm going to say, yeah, that's true, but there ain't no school like the old school. But they're going to do it. I mean, as, as wise as I am. <laughs> they're going to look at me one day and say, Dad, you ain't got a clue. And it, it will not matter in that day what I tell them. Now, they're going to think they're going to think it's my traditions, but what happens is what? My traditions are conflicting with their traditions. Now, they don't call them that because they're young, they're new, they have expectations, but we all got them. We all have a set of expectations. The point isn't whether you're young or old. The point isn't whether they are new established traditions or long established traditions. That, that, that's not the point. The point is this, that we have to hold tightly to Scripture itself and hold loosely to our traditions. You might say we hold them with grace because if we hold them tightly, then Jesus says that conflicts with grace. The wineskins burst. We have to be humble enough to sense when our traditions, when our expectations conflict with what God actually says. All right, so to kind of help us understand this, is it a good thing, now I'm not calling anyone to account here, but I'm just asking, is it a good thing to be on time to church? Some of you are like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good thing, right? I mean, to be punctual, to be on time, to worship, that's a good thing. Now, imagine this, though. Imagine that you're the pastor of the church, and, you know, you got, you got little kids, and you're getting out the door, and you know there's a good thing, and that's being on time to church, especially if you're the guy that, that's got to be there on time, right? And so, but just imagine, hypothetically speaking, that, you know, and everyone's not moving at the pace that you expect them to move. 
and you know that, that time, the time's ticking, it's coming closer, and then what happens? This person, hypothetically, gets impatient, gets irritable, maybe even says something harsh or, or stern in that moment. Like, look, can you not just get out the door on time? And what is happening in that moment, ironically, a good thing, a tradition, showing up at church on time. That's a, that's a tradition. It's, it's a good one, but it's a tradition. That is conflicting then with what God says, be kind to one another the way that I've been kind to you. The fruit of the Spirit is patience, being patient with others the way I've been patient with you. And what happens in that moment is my tradition, timeliness, conflicts with what God says, be kind, loving, and patient. And, and so to take that, like that, that happens in the life of the church too, doesn't it? We've got an expectation. It might be a worship style. It might be a time for something. It might be a way of doing things. And it's not bad. It is not bad to be on time for church. It is, however, wrong for my tradition to conflict with what God has clearly commanded, which is show kindness, show grace, show patience, show goodness. So what am I saying? The issues are different for every church, every generation, and every person. But our hearts all have the same pattern. Like we, don't like, we like to think of ourselves like Jesus in this story, but the truth is there's a little bit of the Pharisees in every one of us. So let's commit to evaluate our traditions in light of what God actually says. With hearts that strive to be loving, kind, and gracious the way that God has been gracious to us. So let's take a minute now and we'll respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk to God and then I'll close this time in prayer. God, we thank you for the way you have shown grace to us. God, help us to show grace to others like that. God, we thank you that Jesus came into this world and he brings a message that is a little bit confrontational, but he also says at the same time he meets your expectations for us. And so, God, I pray that you will help us to trust him for salvation, but also to trust him to make us like you, that our character would reflect your character. God, give us wisdom and interacting with and showing love to each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond to the Lord uh, in worship now. If there are ways that we could encourage you or serve you or help you, I'll actually be up here, probably not that available, but uh, one of our pastors, John Durham, is here in the front and available. If there's any way that we could pray with you or encourage you, we would uh, love to do that. In the meantime, we're going to sing together uh, Victory in Jesus. It's kind of a throwback song, and we got a kind of a throwback arrangement of it. So stand to your feet, and uh, we're going to sing it together.
Praise God. So thankful for these guys, for Jeremy, Steve, Ben, and Mason. As you go today, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Hey.